Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. This week on Sound Medicine, technology in healthcare, protecting yourself after the anthem hack. Is it possible to make health records or any other information perfectly safe? The answer to that is a categorical no. Plus how pharmacies are keeping an eye out for opioid overusers. Killing with too many prescribers in too many pharmacies in a short time period. And the role Suboxone is playing in treating addictions. So it basically gets the disease under control in a way that is a hundred times safer. What to do when the computer gets between you and your doctor. If the physician is sort of preoccupied in another space, it can be a frustrating experience. And 3D printing, helping surgeons know what they're in for. This way, the orthopedic surgeon knows exactly what the fracture looks like, what he or she will need to do to repair that fracture. That's all coming up next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. We're focusing this week on technology and how it's being used in the delivery of health care. In some ways that you've no doubt observed, other ways that are still mostly under the radar and some that are coming over the horizon very quickly. A little later, we'll tell you about a system now in place nearly everywhere in the country to help pharmacists and doctors keep a closer eye on who might be abusing prescription drugs. And we'll give you some strategies to make sure your doctor doesn't spend all of his or her appointment time with you staring at that little screen. But first, as many as 80 million Americans might be affected by the recent hack into Anthem's computer systems, what's being called the largest healthcare breach to date. Our first guest is an expert in medical records and how they are stored and how they are protected. Dr. Titus Schleier is the director of the Regenstrief Center for Biomedical Informatics. He told me that whether health records are stored at a hospital, your doctor's office, nursing home, or the neighborhood pharmacy, it was less scary when they were all on paper. Breaches like Anthem's uh, highlight the fact that there is a lot of information out there, but it's not a new phenomenon. And uh, the people who keep the information needed for their doing their jobs. I'm one of the 80 million, uh, you know, for disclosure. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. And the first thing that occurred to me is I don't really care about the medical information. I mean, that's not important to me. But the Social Security number and the personal information, that matters. Is that the right priority to care more about the uh, the Social Security number and that sort of personal information uh, rather than the medical information? Certainly. I've actually thought about this question myself. I've asked around. So, what if your medical information gets out on the internet? And you have to think about it. If your medical record were out on the internet, who would do anything with it and what would they do with it? And the answer is fairly little. You know, when we think about areas where disclosing your medical information makes a difference, it's usually in employment. Uh, insurance companies like life insurance companies will, of course, look at your medical records or try to, to find out whether they can uh, limit uh, benefits to you or exclude you at all. But 
you know, most patients' patient records, if they were published on the internet, would make for quite boring reading. And what's really much more important is, as in the Anthem case, is social security numbers, states of birth, addresses, and so on. And that's what hackers are really after. Mm -hmm. And are they using that for medical fraud, or is this just for a bigger identity theft? No. You know, the average hacker wants to get money, and so they'll open up a credit account in your name using your data, um, you know, draw as much off it as they can, and then hit the next victim. Or they'll file a, um, a fraudulent tax return in your name and, you know, cash the check before you are even aware of the fact that that happened. That's the business model of hackers. It's not centered on medical information. Okay. Well, how seriously do healthcare providers, insurance companies take our privacy? I mean, how, you know, I mean, obviously we have this one case, you know, this is a huge case, but certainly not the only one. No. And this has been going on for a while. This case makes a lot of waves because it was such a large volume case. Uh, coming on the heels of the Sony hacking incident, you know, uh, it's just uh, just fits that mold. But providers and people who keep our medical information have gotten a lot more conscientious about it, partially because of the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which has been in effect for quite a while. And that act specifies very strictly what security and privacy safeguards you have to have in place. And I'm a healthcare provider myself. I'm a dentist. I've worked at um, several academic medical centers since HIPAA was passed. People take it seriously um, because the penalties for disclosing personal health information are quite steep. And no medical center wants to be asked to pony up for large fines. So there's a lot of motivation. You know, the days are gone when a hospital would sell the data of their newborn mothers to CVS so they could get coupons in the mail. That's disallowed by HIPAA and for good reasons. But there's also this clamor for better medical records and better uh, ability to share medical records uh, yes. between states and healthcare systems so we get better care. So how do you balance the privacy along with the access? So uh, those purposes you just mentioned are explicitly allowed under HIPAA. Um, so this is treatment, payment, and clinical care operations, as we call it. When I treat a uh, patient and I need the medical information from their physician, um, of course, I should not have to th jump through too many hoops to get it. Uh, and that's perfectly legal. That's what HIPAA wants to safeguard. At the same time, it, it says, you know, I don't really need access to all patient records. You know, I just need access to the patient records of people who I treat. So that balance is being struck. Uh, one other thing I should mention is that insurers Health IT companies uh, and others who have access to medical information are called business associates under HIPAA. So they have to have a contract in place with the hospitals that they work with that ensures that they are also applying steep safeguards to safeguard the medical information. Because mm -hmm. you don't want your healthcare information to get out through the company that makes the electronic health record. Mm -hmm. But does that also give hackers a little easier way in if there's more access between states and between healthcare providers? That is correct. So the more places you store medical information in, the more points of attack you give the hacking world. Um, and insurance companies, which you know used to have closely guarded databases that didn't feed off live feeds of other people were more secure at that point because it was just not, they were not out on the internet, you know, just like banks didn't want to put their databases out on the internet. 
But the more people store information on network accessible computers, the more attack points you have. And hackers pick the weakest target. I'm not sure whether Anthem is that, you know, but obviously they managed to get in. I'm speaking with Dr. Titus Schleier about what we can do to help protect our personal medical information. He's the director of the Regenstrief Center for Biomedical Informatics. One of your other questions was, is it possible to make health records or any other information perfectly safe? Mm -hmm. The answer to that is a categorical no. I would characterize it as an arms race. You know, the encryption community, the researchers, they come up with newer algorithms that are stronger, harder to break. And the hackers come up with more creative mechanisms to break these keys. And the other thing that helps hackers, as well as encryptors, is the increasing computing power. So the more computing power you have, the easier it is for you to attack a particular target because the more combinations you can try out in a shorter period of time, the faster you can hack a particular target. So it is really an arms race. And the question is, you know, how much do we invest in securing information? And it's just like insurance. You know, to what degree do you insure your house? You insure it to balancing the cost of the insurance with the risk you think of an adverse incident in your house. So you think about banking as an institution that would take this very seriously. But should healthcare? Oh, definitely. I don't really um, think a social security number stored in a hospital is of lesser value than one stored in a bank. So we should use the same standard there. You know, with medical information, yes, um, accidental disclosure of medical information is a violation of HIPAA, and there are penalties. The practical consequences of that aren't that, you know, nobody's going to open up a, a line of credit using your medical record. So personally, the consequences of that are not as serious as somebody opening up a line of credit and then giving you a bad credit history that you have to work months and years to eradicate. But still, you know, we need to invest money in securing health information and uh, hospitals need to balance that with all the other things they have to spend money on. And I think the the fear, at least, you know, and, and again, Anthem is saying that the um, medical information wasn't compromised, yes. just the personal information. But could medical information be used for medical fraud? I mean, I think that would be the thing that we're most scared of, just not knowing really the ins and outs of this. Yeah, when I think of medical fraud, you know, I think of Florida, I think of Medicare, um, I think of overbilling. For a hacker to use existing medical records for fraudulent purposes to get reimbursed for something, it, it's just, it's not that it's impossible. It's just not a not a very wonderful business model because if you think of credit card fraud, so for instance, let's say your credit card gets stolen, somebody can go online on Amazon and order something using your credit card. So the, the reward there for the hacker is immediate. To commit medical fraud using a big data set of patients, you know, that will take a lot of creativity to make some money off. Can regular people do anything to help ensure that their personal data is safe at their doctor's office? Um, that is office? a good question, and the answer is it's essentially out of your hands. You know, you're at the doctor's office, you fill out forms, you get interviewed, you get lab tests done. It's really the office that stores your information. And in many cases, actually, it's not even the office. You know, are your health, all the physicians are on Cerner, and so that's managed by the corporation. So the individual physician has no real input on you know, how secure is this. And then beyond that, actually, there is an increasing trend towards cloud-based storage, even in healthcare. So some big customers 
they don't even know where their data are because they're in the cloud. But in essence, um, with these big systems, you are, as a patient, you are so removed from control over your information that you can't really do anything. And so if we find out that our medical information is compromised at any point in our lives, is there anything we should do? Not about your medical information, okay. um, about your personal demographic information. You know, take the normal steps. In preparation for the interview, I actually looked up whether Indiana allows credit freezes, and it does. And I've had a credit freeze on the three credit report providers ever since Pennsylvania passed that law. And so my credit history is locked up. So unless I give a, I unlock it for a particular purpose, nobody can access it, which means they also can't use it to open it up an account in my name. So it's a great way to not have to worry too much about identity theft. Any other things we should be thinking about? So one thing is uh, tax returns. So many times fraudsters file a tax return for you because they stole your identity. They get the check mailed to them. They cash it before you actually know it that is happening. So that's another area to watch. And one thing, and actually that has more of a connection to medical records, if your children are, let's say, at Anthem, you want to protect them also from identity theft because they don't have a credit history, you know, so the social security number can be reused and all this. Um, so that's also an area to watch for. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being our guest. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. Dr. Titus Schleier is the director of the Regenstrief Center for Biomedical Informatics in Indianapolis. And we've posted a number of stories about how you can protect yourself from medical hackers. They're at our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. And later, we'll be speaking with one of Dr. Schleier's colleagues at Regenstrief about how electronic medical records have changed the routine doctor visit, not always in a good way. I found that with my own children, taking them to the pediatrician where the nurse has a computer that's been sort of put into the patient's room. And so typically the nurse will have their back to the patient asking a canned set of questions as they're trying to fill out the forms on the workstation. I'm Eric Metcalf, and your sound medicine stat is 50 Consider the plight of the American teen with the advanced placement classes and the soccer team and the after-school job while having to Instagram every waking moment and then starting the day again with 8 a.m. classes. A new survey asked parents of teens who start school before 8.30 if they'd support a later start time. 50% of the parents 50. were cool and said yes. The rest of the parents were all hashtag lame, saying, For the last time, get up. Don't make me come in here again. Do you know who else can't deal with schools starting early? The American Academy of Pediatrics. Last year, they called for middle and high schools to push back their start times to 8.30 or even later. They brought out some science, man, talking about teens' natural sleep cycles, preventing them from crashing before 11 p.m. A later start could help teens have better grades, less obesity, fewer car wrecks, and less depression. I support this initiative as not just a dad, but a dad who works from home and would also like to sleep in. That was the number 50, and I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up, how pharmacies are using technology to keep tabs on overprescribing. And later, fans of Grey's Anatomy might have seen a recent storyline that uses 3D printing to help with a delicate surgery. Dr. Gray. 3D printing will allow us to customize treatment for an individual's specific needs. Eventually, even using a patient's own cells to prevent rejection. Welcome to the age of 
personalized medicine. A fork? You got it. We just got the printer yesterday. We're testing it out. Forks today. Tomorrow, portal veins for actual people. You guys. Coming up, we'll talk with someone who can explain how the technology really works. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's health news headlines. The Supreme Court is getting ready to hear arguments next Wednesday, which could determine the fate of the Affordable Care Act. At issue is whether people who live in states that did not set up their own insurance exchange are still eligible for subsidies. If the court rules that they are not, the Obama administration says it doesn't have a way to repair the damage that would be done to the insurance system since many people would be unable to afford coverage without those subsidies. The World Health Organization urged people in Russia and Eastern Europe to get their measles shots and now. While there have been just over 150 cases of measles here in the U.S. recently, there have been more than 22,000 cases in that region since the start of 2014. The head of the WHO in Europe said that after 50 years of having a vaccination available, the current high levels of measles are, quote, unacceptable. The big news in the world of allergies this week was the paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine that turned decades of advice about peanuts upside down. Now, the new findings are that eating peanuts in the first year of life actually reduces the risk of developing the allergy by as much as 86 percent among high-risk infants. And here's confirmation of what you probably suspected. A new study from the University of Michigan looked at which foods tend to inspire an addictive-like response among people with a high body mass index. In the no column, health foods, such as brown rice and salmon. Over on the yes side were highly processed foods, such as pizza, french fries, and other foods high in fat or refined carbs. Now, the study's authors said that it might not be a question of cutting back on these foods, but rather avoiding them altogether. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. There have been some glimmers recently that the opioid prescription drug epidemic might be letting up. And one reason might be the increase of the use of prescription drug monitoring programs that help doctors and pharmacists keep better tabs on medication use. Rebecca Hafaji is a fellow at the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute. She recently published a paper in JAMA that looked at how states are implementing these programs and how they could be made more effective. So these are electronic systems that store controlled substance dispensing information. Um, And then they make these data available to prescribers, dispensers, and sometimes law enforcement personnel. And so from the prescriber perspective, these programs serve a number of uses. Prescribers can query the databases. That means they can log into the system and search it using a patient's name. And then they can find a patient's prescription history. So this would be information about the dose, supply, and prescriber of scheduled drugs that a patient has filled. And these drugs are typically opioids, stimulants, and sometimes benzodiazepines, drugs that are scheduled and are flagged as potentially harmful if abused. 
And then prescribers can use this information to inform their prescribing of the patient they're treating. Okay. So what would be a, a common pattern of someone who is trying to get more opioids? I mean, what, what, are, what are you really kind of looking for with these systems? What are they catching? What type of behavior? They're catching, uh, I guess, two forms of misuse. One would be abuse, so filling with too many prescribers in too many pharmacies in a short time period. Different thresholds have been proposed. One that commonly I've seen is sort of more than five prescribers and or more than five pharmacies within a three-month period. That would tend to be a flag that the patient is probably getting too many drugs. Another thing these programs can help flag is diverters. So those would be people who, again, may be reaching these thresholds, but aren't using them for their own use, but are actually diverting them to other users and probably selling them on the street. Now, are these programs national or does each state have one? There have been a number of proposals to have a national program proposed over the years, but they've never been adopted. And so currently the systems all operate at the state level. So 49 states almost all have operational prescription drug monitoring programs, and Missouri is the only state without one. Although that state programs have been proposed there too, but not adopted yet. So how many states legally require healthcare providers to use their state's drug monitoring program? Right now, 22 of the 49 states that have a prescription drug monitoring program have some kind of a mandate that prescribers have to actually use the program. But these vary. Some of the mandates are based on objective criteria. So they require, you know, every time a prescriber prescribes one of these scheduled drugs for the first time to a patient or if it's sort of a chronic treatment pattern and they've been prescribing it for three months or six months, they have to keep checking and usually there are exceptions for hospice or cancer care, for example. But others have what are called subjective requirements, so they defer to the prescriber's judgment. And the laws will say something like, if a prescriber suspects abuse. So I guess it's questionable whether that's truly a mandate because it makes the program essentially voluntary again and at the prescriber's discretion. Okay, so are there penalties um, that the providers can face if they don't use a system like they should? Any state doing that? The most typical penalty I've seen is disciplinary sanctions by licensing boards. Usually the programs will just defer and, and let the licensing boards make the decisions. New York has the most stringent penalty requirement that I've seen, which is a fine of up to $2,000 or one year of jail or revocation of a license. Now, I happen to know that representatives of New York's prescription drug monitoring program, which is called ISOP, have said at a conference that like, they would never actually impose those penalties, but nevertheless, they are on the book. But in your article, you mentioned that not all healthcare providers like using these systems. What are some of their complaints? Some of the complaints are generic to prescription drug monitoring programs altogether. So things I hear a lot are that prescribers have trouble getting logins. Um, The system can be down altogether, so they'll go to check and they won't be able to get any information. Um, Even if they can get information, often the data are incomplete and are not updated frequently enough to be useful to providers. So if they're only updated every month or something like that, it's not that useful. Prescribers often complain that the data are not integrated into their clinical workflow, so they have to log into a separate system, and they would much prefer that the information automatically fed into their electronic medical record systems, for example. And then they say that there's little guidance on how they are to interpret or use the results once they see them. So if they see that a patient has filled relatively recently, but they don't really know, well, is this enough to raise the flag of abuse or is it borderline so I should feel okay about prescribing? 
And then finally, they say that this is all uncompensated time, that they have to log into a separate system. It takes extra time away from actually treating the patient. Some of the complaints are specific to mandates that they use the system. And so one could be that they compromise adequate pain management. So if I'm a doctor and I say, this is just such a hassle, I'm required to have to check the system, I would rather just not prescribe at all to patients or I'll refer my patients to other doctors if they want these substances because I just don't want to go there. Then that could just result in the patient you know, not being able to get the pain medication that they may actually need. Do we know whether these drug monitoring programs have really done anything to help reduce the epidemic of opioid abuse and overdoses? Recent reports have been suggesting that overdose deaths, opioid prescriptions, and rates of abuse and diversion have been flattening or reducing, so from 2011 to 2013, and that was after a precipitous incline from about 2002 to 2010. So something seems to be working, but we don't know exactly what it is, and there are a number of studies on prescription drug monitoring programs, and the evidence is mixed. There is no evidence they reduce overdoses. There was one seminal study on that, and that suggests that they don't reduce overdoses. But there is mixed evidence that they might reduce prescribing of opioids overall, reduce drug diversion, and reduce doctor shopping. There are a number of problems with these studies. They don't precisely characterize the interventions, so often they'll just say, does this state have a prescription drug monitoring program or not, as opposed to trying to gauge the strength or the effectiveness of the actual prescription drug monitoring program. And then none are really yet assessing, as I said, sort of the strong program features, such as mandates that are the recent innovation. So we don't know if that's the policy lever that's actually maybe doing some of the work. So it's, it's very hard to disentangle these different components and to know are the prescription drug monitoring programs themselves or certain features of helping to contribute to this flattening of the opioid abuse epidemic. Well, Rebecca Hafaji, thank you so much for talking with me. You're most welcome. Rebecca Hafaji is an attorney and public health researcher in the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And before we leave the topic of opioid painkiller addiction, we thought we'd take a few moments for a small refresher course. The drug known as Suboxone has been in the news lately. It's prescribed to people with an addiction either to prescription painkillers or to heroin. I asked addiction specialist Dr. Andrew Chambers to walk us through the similarities and differences between Suboxone and the old line addiction treatment methadone. They're both opioids, and they're very effective opioids in particular for treating people with opiate addiction. That's sort of hard to get your head wrapped around at first, but you know the, the issue is that for many people with opiate addiction, uh, it's very difficult for them to stop, uh, go uh, cold turkey. Um, this is uh, really not a realistic expectation for many people with a disease. So you do want to essentially feed the monster. Uh, sometimes we say that to patients, you know, we're going to feed the monster to get it under control. And it's a way to basically uh, maintain them relatively symptom-free from craving opiates, from going into horrific withdrawals, from having psychiatric instability, from having to purchase the opiates from drug dealers, from using the opiates in a very medically or physically dangerous way. So it basically uh, gets the disease under control. Uh, with either Suboxone or Methadone, both opiates. 
in a way that is a hundred times safer. One of the characteristics that they both have uh, that makes that po- all that possible as well is that they're, you know, they're actually both very long-acting pharmacologically. So when you use either of those types of opiates, the duration of effect is long-lasting. So the, the person who's using it only has to take it once a day. And the effect is lasting long enough and is smooth enough so that there's not a roller coaster of ups and downs of highs and lows, as you might get with other opiates. So that's how the the two drugs are similar. This is how they're different. Methadone is a full agonist opioid medication. What that means is as you push the dose up, you get a bigger and bigger effect. The downside of that is you can push the dose of methadone up high enough to die from an overdose. In addition, methadone can mix with other opioids to also produce an overdose. Unlike methadone, Suboxone really is a partial agonist, and that means that at a certain point as you push the dose of Suboxone higher and higher, it gives you less back. So there's a ceiling to its maximum dose efficacy. The good news there is that you have a much lower risk of a lethal overdose on Suboxone. And how frequently Mm -hmm. is Suboxone prescribed? What are some of the limits to its being able to be prescribed? If a doctor is prescribing methadone or Suboxone to treat pain, there are really very few restrictions around that kind of prescribing. On the other hand, if they're prescribed for the treatment of opiate addiction, there are lots of restrictions around that prescribing, and and in, in large part, those restrictions are a good idea. In the case of methadone, if you're treating opiate addiction, and that's what you've diagnosed, with methadone, that has to be done in a controlled methadone treatment setting that exists and functions under a laundry list of federal and state regulations and laws. Patients have to show up every day for a dose of methadone. The benefit there is they can't hoard quantities of the med that they could overdose on or divert. Suboxone does not have regulation that's like that. Um, Suboxone when prescribed for opiate addiction is a little bit more like the way we prescribe opiates for pain in the sense that we can immediately prescribe a month's supply, for example, or several weeks' supply to treat someone so they don't have to come back every day. Dr. Andrew Chambers is an associate professor of psychiatry and an addiction expert at the IU School of Medicine. We'll put more information about how Suboxone works on our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. back to talking about technology and healthcare after a break. But first, a new study finds that your neighborhood deli might be serving up more than just freshly sliced meats. About one in 10 was found to be serving a less than appetizing side order. Jill Dittmeyer has more in this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. How do you test the level of bacteria in your neighborhood deli? You call in a sanitary sleuth. My name is Haley Oliver. I'm an assistant professor at Purdue University in the Department of Food Science. She and her colleagues at the West Lafayette Indiana University visited 30 delis in three states looking for listeriosis. 
Listeria monocytogenes is the third leading cause of foodborne disease-related death in the United States. Holy hamloaf! We didn't test food products. It's important to note that we were just looking at the deli environment itself. Instead, they swabbed contact surfaces searching for clues. I think of those contact surfaces really as the surfaces below the waist. So the floors, drains, again, surfaces that we wouldn't expect food to ever come in contact with. And in one out of every 10 delis tested, that is just where they found it. On occasion, we would find it on food contact surfaces. And of course, we were interested then to know whether or not the organism, the monocytogenes we found on the food contact surfaces was exactly the same based on DNA fingerprinting as the ones that we would find on the floor. In most cases, it was. And in many cases, it had been there for a long time. We can find Listeria monocytogenes in the same environment for over a year. Keeping it away from food and customers can be a challenge. As a deli owner, you're up against a number of challenges. You have equipment that takes a long time or is very, very difficult to clean because it wasn't necessarily designed to be cleaned fast and efficiently. If consumed, Listeria causes a host of gastrointestinal troubles and can be deadly for those with weakened immune systems. Listeria monocytogenes grows in ready-to-eat foods that are high moisture, like deli meats. It's also very sensitive to heat. If you insist, as an immunocompromised person, on eating deli meats, you should simply heat it, and heat it thoroughly, and that will really mitigate your risk. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. There's a ubiquitous piece of equipment in doctor's offices these days, a computer. And it often means that your physician or nurse is looking at the screen instead of you during much of your 15-minute exam time. So we thought we'd check in with someone who has studied the evolution of computerized health records for some tips on how to make sure your healthcare provider isn't too distracted by the challenges of hunting and pecking. Dr. J.T. Fennell is a research scientist at the Regenstrief Institute. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. Thanks, Barb. So how common is it these days for doctors to update their patients' electronic medical records actually during the visit? Because one of our producers takes his kids to a pediatrician who always wheels in a computer on a cart and then types and clicks away during the visit. It's, uh, it depends on the setting, but it's more and more common. Um, I found that with my own children, taking them to the pediatrician is the same experience where the nurse has a computer that's been sort of put into the patient's room, not in a user-friendly way. And so typically the nurse will have their back to the patient asking a canned set of questions as they're trying to fill out the forms on, on the workstation. And I think the, the complaint is, from the patient's perspective, is you don't have your doctor's attention. You don't even have your doctor's eyes on you. 
No, that's very true. And there's a, a lot of work that's been done uh, looking at the intrusion of computers into this intimate space, if you will, between the doctor and the patient and trying to get a thorough history. Uh, people have quoted Sir William Osler, who said, you know, if you just listen to the patient, they will tell you the diagnosis. And these technologies occasionally do get in the way. If, if the physician or care provider is sort of preoccupied in another space and not thinking and listening intelligently to what the patient's saying, it can be a frustrating experience. Mm-hmm. But can it be improved because electronic medical records seem to be pervasive? Well, I, I think one of the things is having the providers or the patients um, involved in what goes into that medical record. There's often questions that we have to ask because of a government or or a required field that has to be answered. And some of those just don't make sense in all of the patient patient settings. When a patient presents to the emergency department, we're required to ask them about safety and self-harm. That's a required field. So it seems sort of weird you're there with a sore throat, yet the nurse is going through this litany of items that, that are required. The nursing documentation has uh, between six and eight pages that has to be filled through, and each page could have up to 20 elements that have to be answered. So some of those answers could be, you know, not appropriate, you know, not not indicated, but each of those typically has to be addressed. And do they have to be addressed during the actual visit? No, and that that's sort of um, where you can get into timing in, in terms of incorporating the medical records into the exam. And so my setting is in the emergency department, and there's different tacks that our providers will take. One is that as soon as we've assigned ourselves to the patient, we can look up the patient in the electronic record and sort of become familiar with their past story and sort of get a jump start on what's likely to be, to be the issues today. Um, the other way is just going in cold and talking to the patient and then having to, to backfill with with the clinical data. Both work. It just depends on how busy you are and how complicated the presenting complaint can be. Okay. So let's talk about you as a, as a father. So mm-hmm. you take your, 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 your child into the pediatrician, and the pediatrician is typing away on the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, are you thinking that, you know, hey, could you spend more time? Yeah, I, I sort of see it from both sides. I see it as an informatician, you know, that they're putting data into a medical record system that'll be useful down down the line. If my daughter needs uh, care from a different provider, that initial visit I was at would be documented. Um, but I do miss that sort of camaraderie that you get as the pediatrician interacts with your child and there's a face-to-face um, experience. Um, it's... Uh, it's. It was sort of curious. The first day they went live with their electronic records, they had notes on all the patient doors saying, please forgive us. You know, we've just started documenting an electronic healthcare record. And I took a photo that I've used in some of our lectures to show that, you know, electronic records, if they're not implemented properly, can actually cause problems like this. And is it the implementation? I mean, are we talking about a system problem that some electronic medical record systems are uh, very complex or maybe overly complex? Uh, yeah, I think I think there's a combination of that. I think I think it's very easy to document a lot of things that aren't relevant to the patient's story. Mm-hmm. As we're reviewing records in the emergency department, it's not uncommon that we'll have you know pages of documentation related to a very simple complaint, and many providers complain about that. That it takes you a while to sift through that and say, okay, this was just a simple sore throat or a simple earache, but yet the documentation doesn't doesn't fit. It's just enormous. Um, but So I think they can be built a little bit more efficiently to help the providers take care of patients better. One of the solutions has been among some hospital systems across the country or healthcare systems across the country is to have scribes, mm-hmm. to have somebody come in with the doctor 
and allow the doctor to have the you know the eye contact and and, and the conversation while the uh, while somebody takes notes. Mm-hmm. Is that a good solution? Uh, I, I don't know what the data shows, but but I'd say in general, the physician's probably the most expensive resource in the healthcare team. And so if they're doing tasks or activities that don't help enhance patient care, then you're you're wasting a precious resource. And so a lot of the systems do require a lot of point and click and documentation that can really be done by other members of the team. And so the more you can offload the physicians to actually do the things that they're trained to do, the better off you could be. I think the data does support that you're much more efficient as a provider by having scribes. But then again, you have to figure out a way to get the data from the electronic record back into the physician's brain so they can make, make the right decisions. Now, we've talked on Sound Medicine about how patients can best talk to their doctor about their needs and concerns during a visit. So let's reframe it for this electronic age. How can you best talk about your symptoms and ask questions so your doctor hears what you're saying while they're using the computer? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's great, and it sort of goes back to the same principles even without a computer. Um, during a medical visit, you should try to come prepared. You know, what are the questions that you have of the provider that you want to get asked or answered during that visit? So many patients, um, you know, there's, the experience is very different. You have a nurse that comes in, does an intake. You may have a, a junior-level provider doing an, another intake, and then finally the faculty or attending physician will come in. So it's really important to understand the healthcare system that you're you're involved with and the types of people you're going to run into. And then uh, we often also get uh, patients who expect everything to be in the electronic record. So when we ask patients what medications you're taking or what problems do you have, they'll frequently say it's in the record, but yet that record may not be accessible to us in the emergency department. Is there a polite way for the patient to say, hey, you know, look at me? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think the patient, if if their needs aren't being met, they need to express that to the provider and say, you know, you look distracted. You know, can can we just talk here without the computer being in the way? Um, I think that's important and appropriate so that the provider recognizes that the patient has a need that's not not being met. Um, different settings, you're going to have different types of electronics in the way. Um, we've had patients accuse some of our residents of updating their Facebook status, you know, when they're using their handheld device, but in actuality. They're actually looking up a medication dose or, or researching the problem that the patients told them about so they can look better you know, when they present that case to the attending physician. There's um, a lot of patients who come in and actually have helped us with technology. So they've had a rash or they've had an injury, and they've taken a photo of it and brought it in on their smartphone, recognizing that the rash may fade or may go away. But them having a visual picture for us is extremely helpful. Besides that, are there other ways that we can use our technology, our computer, our smartphone to help you? Yeah, some patients have had problem lists where they kind of keep an active um, medication profile that's on their, their device. So that's been helpful. Uh, taking pictures of injury or, um, you know, this is what happened in the accident can be helpful uh, to us because it's really hard when it's sort of like when you bring your car to the shop and it stopped making that noise. If you come to the, the hospital or the clinic and you've had a rash and yet it's gone and it's not visible, it's really hard for the provider to make an educated diagnosis. Before I let you go, you know, a doctor's visit to primary care is, there's two things. There's one, they're, they're, it's getting shorter and shorter, the amount of time that the doctor can spend, and then you have the electronic medical records. So what are our, our best things to keep in mind as a patient when we, you know, go see our doctor now? 
I'd say the first thing is that if you're on your device, you know, <laughs> put it down. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So stop, stop updating right, your status. Right. So we do have that, that uh, you'll walk into a patient's room and they're talking on the phone or the TV's on in, in the exam room. And so those things need to be put away and turned off to, to enhance the encounter. The second is if, uh, come prepared. If you have, a, have questions that you need answers to, make sure you express those to the providers so that they can get those addressed for you during that visit. You're right. The visits are getting shorter and it's much easier if if patients are prepared and have a set of questions that they want answers to. And lastly, as you've brought up, is that if you feel like the doctor provider isn't isn't providing a good experience, that they're distracted through a technology or some other um, means, express that. Say, hey, you know, I need some FaceTime. I need to understand um, what's happening in my in my health world. Dr. J.T. Fennell, thank you as always for being on Cell Medicine. Thanks a lot, Barb. Dr. J.T. Fennell is an associate professor of clinical emergency medicine at the IU School of Medicine, as well as a research scientist at the Regan Street Institute. So please, oh please, I'm down on my knees. What's it take for you to pay attention to me? If there's something I can do, darling, won't you let me see what I can do to make you pay attention to me? What I can do to make you pay attention to me. And finally this week, what could very well be the next big thing that is actually already in use in medicine? 3D printing is already being used to make some implants in patient education and in preparing for an especially complicated operation. Dr. Mark Michalski is a research resident in diagnostic radiology at Yale University, and he's doing a lot of work in this area. We asked him to begin by explaining just how 3D printing works. We start with medical imaging. We use that similar to a blueprint, and we convert that into a 3D model that can be made out of lots of different kinds of materials, uh, everything from plastic to metal to uh, even uh, material similar to drywall. But uh, our process is essentially that. We get images that are medically related, and then we transform them into models that are commonly used for preoperative planning, for education, and a couple other things. So one current use, and this is one that was featured in a a video um, of yours for 3D printing, is to create a model of like a damaged body part, say a bone with an unusual break. Let's use that as an example of how that would really benefit the surgeon or the patient and both. When you have, say, a complex fracture through your pelvic bone uh, at the hip, it's called an acetabular fracture, and it's unfortunately a common one in, in trauma. When you have those complex fractures, it's difficult for the surgeons first to understand exactly how the fracture pattern occurs. So if you're at, at, say, a trainee level, it's a pretty tough thing to try to, to understand how the fracture happens and where exactly the fracture lines are going. And then, two, these fractures can be complex enough that it's hard to understand how you're best going to treat it. So how are you going to approach it and potentially what kind of hardware are you going to use? So one of the things that we've used 3D printing for is to model those acetabular fractures. And by doing that, we can do a couple things. We can first give these models to trainees so that they can understand what the stereotypical pattern for those fractures really is. And then second, for individual patients, when surgeons need to figure out, say, what kind of hardware they're going to use, say a hip replacement, 
then they can use these models to test out the hardware as opposed to actually having to go into the OR, spend OR time, and unfortunately have the patient under general anesthesia for a longer time testing out the hardware. This way, the orthopedic surgeon knows exactly what the fracture looks like, what he or she will need to do to repair that fracture. And finally, you asked what it can do for the patient. Well, it can certainly make that surgery easier for the, the surgeons, which in turn benefits the patient. But it's also great for communication. So these complex fractures are difficult for the doctors to understand, and it's also difficult for the doctors to communicate what's happened. So in those cases, it's a very useful tool for communicating to patients what's happened. So you can just show them, here's, here's the model of your bone, this is what the break is, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, exactly. They're unique pathophysiology. So it's not, say, what we're all used to in, in medical school where we see uh, this bony skeleton that is normal. This is actually their unique skeleton or bone or pathology. In an article that you wrote for JAMA, you, you mentioned a case in which 3D printing was used to create a, a type of internal scaffolding that very probably saved a baby's life. Can, can you tell us a little bit about how that worked and what the scaffolding was built out of? Absolutely, yeah. So that scaffolding was used to uh, prop open a, a major airway for an infant. It was made out of a polymer material that bioresorbs, means the body actually can take that material and absorbs it over time. So the nice thing about it is this 3D printed stent was just big enough to keep that airway open for the infant. And over time, the material goes away. And the nice thing is that the researchers on that study were able to take CT images, medical images, and get that stent exactly the size and length that they needed to keep that airway open. So as opposed to using some device that isn't personalized, they were able to create something that would fit better and keep that airway open more effectively. So what would have been the procedure if 3D printing wasn't invented and this polymer scaffolding couldn't be created? The options are limited. In this instance, you would probably have to use a generic stent to, to prop that airway open. It probably wouldn't fit as well. You'd have to exchange it out over time. These are great applications now with our, our current technology, but I'd probably also add that 3D printing is being used in a regenerative medicine as well. So people are exploring 3D printing's use for actually making organs. Now, this work is very early on, and uh, it's fair to say that there's still a fair bit of research that needs to take place. But the promise is that you could potentially print a brand new organ that is personalized for you and be able to transplant those organs. As you may know, the transplant backlog for, for many critical organs, is uh, the, the waiting list is quite long, and there's a huge need for those sorts of organs. So that would be a transformative innovation. Well, we'll just have to check back with you in, in a little while because things seem to be happening so fast. So thank you so much for your time. This has just been fascinating. Well, thanks so much, and it was really a pleasure. Mark Michalski is the Holman Research Resident at Yale University in Diagnostic Radiology. And Dr. Michalski has also been featured in a video about 3D printing, so we'll post a link to that on our website. You can find it by going to soundmedicine.org.
And that's it for this week's program. Tell us what you think by posting comments at soundmedicine.org. Sound Medicine senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf produces our interviews. Chris Lieber records and edits the program, and he chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is the managing editor of Sound Medicine News, with help from Andrea Moraskin. And the executive producer is Eric Eggleton. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.